Thanks for checking out the Good Morning Hamilton podcast. I'm Rick Samprin. Let's run around the bay. President Biden touches down in Canada. Ontario's budget has no new money to address inflation. Avian flu arrives in Niagara, learning about indigenous iron workers, and is blockbuster video following Zeller's lead? The GMH podcast starts now. This is the Good Morning Hamilton podcast on 900 CHML. There's going to be a lot of people running around the bay this weekend. It's the annual Around the Bay Road Race in what is going to be kind of an end of an era, at least for a little while, all due to upcoming renovations at First Ontario Centre. Now, they haven't started yet, but there is going to be an impact when it comes to the iconic Around the Bay Road Race. This weekend, though, it is full steam ahead, and hey, the weather looks pretty darn gone good as well. Anna Lewis is the race director of the Around the Bay Road Race and joins us now on Good Morning Hamilton on 900 CHML. Anna, good morning. How are you? Good morning. I'm great. Thanks. Uh, thanks for having me here today. Gee, how many years has it been now that you've been the race director? My first race as race director was 2016, um, but I started in June of 2015 uh, starting to plan for that. Yeah. So uh, you, this is old hat. Do you still get the butterflies? Absolutely, 100%. It's uh, always, you know, something that happens that changes the uh, the course of the of the weekend, if you will. Um, there's always challenges, um, but that's what makes it fun. And uh, I really look forward to it every year with all the volunteers and the, the team that we get together. It's just like a big uh, reunion. What's the number one thing on your worry list? Uh, well, it... It, it kind of changes as uh, as as we plan through it. So, of course, lift bridge was a, a concern at one point. Uh, so that is gone. Weather is always a concern. So now that one's taken off the list. Uh, but then it's just, you know, making sure that staff show up, uh, volunteers are ready. They have all the materials and all the deliveries are on time. Um, so that's always a, a continued concern. You nailed it on the weather front, you know, mix of sun and cloud, the high about five or seven degrees. That is, you know, perfect conditions for this type of event. I'm sure you and all the participants are looking forward to that. What is it like on race day for you as the race director seeing all these different tentacles make this thing work? It's a pretty amazing experience for sure. Um, you just feel overwhelmed with um, pride in, in the city and in all the participants who have trained so hard with your team that has put this together. So there's a lot of pride for sure in in the teamwork that, that goes in it. But um, yeah, I, I think uh, it's going to be balmy in terms of around the bay weather. Um, but uh, I think it's just a, a sense of community when you're out there. Now that we're through the pandemic cancellation years that uh, we all had to endure, is there anything new for this year's Around the Bay? Uh, you know what? I think it's what's what's old is new, <laughs> right? <laughs> when you return to, to what we used to do and the experience we've come to, um, to enjoy. Um, but, you know, I want to give a shout out to Gord England this year because it will be his 30th consecutive in-person race. Um, so we're, we're looking forward to, to hosting him and to celebrate that achievement because um, running is a, a high impact sport, even though you may not think it, uh, but it's high impact on your body. And to do that, to do the Bay Race 30 years is a, an accomplishment, but to do it 30 years consecutively um, in person is, is just a, 
amazing feat for sure. That is tremendous. Anna Lewis is our guest on Good Morning Hamilton on 900 CHML. Anna is the longtime race director of the Round the Bay Road Race. It kicks off this coming Sunday. Um, is, is this sort of a bittersweet around the bay, given that there's going to be some change in the next couple of years? And this is kind of an end of an era, at least for the current iteration of the race, given the renovations that are going to come up at First Ontario Centre. What, what are some of the things rolling around in your mind about this weekend's race? Well, I, I must admit, when we, we are in First Ontario Centre, it does feel like home. Uh, the staff here are amazing and really treat us so well. Uh, so I will miss the staff for sure. And in the uh, opportunity to kind of use this facility in this way, um, you know, we do feel very, very much at home. And, and, and so that'll be, that will definitely be missed, but it's, um, you know, with anything that lasts over 129 years, there's got to be change. And I think every change is, could be, a, you know, a new door opening that leads to some more uh, exciting exper- experiences. So next year's race is going to involve Tim Horton's fields. That will obviously force you to reconfigure the race route. Uh, do you have a good idea what it's going to look like? Well, I mean, the nuts and bolts are going to be there because we have to travel around the bay. Um, and there are, you know, past routes that we can look at and see what worked there and what didn't work. Um, but certainly, um, you know, we'll have to consult uh, the city, both cities, um, to make sure that we are um, doing something that is fun, enjoyable, but also true to the uh, to the experience. What kind of numbers are we going to see on Sunday in terms of runners that are going around the bay doing the 5K? What are we looking at? Well, we're going to sell out at 6,500, so we've already sold out. Um, but uh, people can register at the expo, um, but we're just going to mail them the shirts and medals because we'll we'll then know how much more to order. Uh, so you can still register, but in person at the expo, and the expo is free and open to the public on Friday and Saturday. Yeah, it goes today from one thirty to six thirty again tomorrow, ten a.m. to five p.m. That should be a phenomenal uh, event, and so will Sunday as well. Anna, good luck Sunday, and uh, the weather is going to participate. We're going to have a lot of participants running around the bay. It should be another exciting weekend. Thanks for joining us today. Thank you. Anna Lewis, race director around the Bay Road Race. Yes, 129 years. The next time around will be the big 130, and it will include Tim Hortons Field, which should be pretty exciting. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. When it comes to a democracy, this is what we should all come together and protect it. And this is not what I'm seeing from the Conservatives or the Liberals. And that's why we're positioning ourselves to say a public inquiry is the right way forward to protect our democracy. Welcome back to Good Morning Hamilton on 900 CHML. That is the voice of NDP leader Jagmeet Singh, again calling for a public inquiry into allegations of Chinese interference in our elections. One of the hottest stories in the country. And as the election interference circus goes round and round and round, the Prime Minister has welcomed the U.S. President, yes, Joe Biden, in Ottawa. He touched down yesterday, they had a lovely meal last night, I'm sure, and back to business today with a bunch of items on the agenda. Here to talk about it is David Tarrant, Vice President, National Strategic Communications at Enterprise Canada, former communications strategist in the office of Prime Minister Stephen Harper. David, welcome back to the show. How are you? 
Hey, Rick, thanks for having me on. Hey, new this morning, the PMO confirming that the Prime Minister and his wife did indeed stay at that $6,000 a night hotel suite in London while they were attending the funeral for Queen Elizabeth. It is yet another example of frivolous spending by this government. Yeah, I mean, there's, there's two angles to the story, Rick, and, and one is dollars and cents, and, and, and some of the price tag is eye-popping. Uh, you know, I remember, you know, back in the Harper days, uh, cabin member being hounded off as Bevoda for a $15 glass of orange juice. Uh, and certainly the liberals had no problem grandstanding on that. Um, but, it's, it, but listen, in the scheme of the Canadian budget, it's not a huge amount of money. I think the issue here is this, it's a proof point in a story we've seen from Trudeau. And we see it, we see it in, in, in all the different scandals, whether it's SNC Lavaline or we or his vacationing on the Aga Khan's private island, or even the latest trying to defer in scandal, this real sense that uh, this is a guy who believes that the rules are for the little people. They're not for him. They're not for people and say, in a certain strata of Canadian society. Rules are really meant to, for the holy poly, for the little people. And it, it's almost like it's, it's congenital. It's, he's oblivious to the fact that he, he's expected to play by the same rules as, as, as the rest of Canada. And it's certainly great for a lot of people. Yeah, and it makes me think of that famous phrase, and I can't remember the person who said it, but uh, I'm entitled to my entitlement, and this seems to be along the same lines. Yeah, that was the former Liberal cabinet minister, David Dingwall. Who, That's, yeah. Who, uh, who, who, said, who said the quiet part out loud. Right? <laughs> you know, uh, but yeah, that, that, that kind of way these guys operate. Um, President Biden and Prime Minister Trudeau will sit down to talk about a bunch of things. What must come out of this meeting today? Well, you know, listen, uh, it, it, it is. Listen, the U.S.-Canada relationship is the most important, uh, obviously, foreign relationship Canada has. And it's a big deal whenever, you know, you get that, uh, that, that private time with, 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 with the U.S. president. Um, and, and depending on where you are, at different times, it accomplishes different things. Sometimes there's real serious uh, bilateral, multilateral policy issues that need to work out. I think about negotiating NAFTA, or most recently the... Uh, the uh, Canada-U.S. free trade agreement uh, uh, in the previous administration. Sometimes, you know, it's it's uh, you know, it's a great it's great for domestic politics to show how well the prime minister and president get along. This one here is a little bit different, and I'm trying to think back. And listen, I mean, my memory goes back to the Moroni years and through the Kretchen and Harper and and, and, and to the Trudeau. I can't remember where a visiting U.S. president is being used as a channel changer. Like hmm. like this government has been hammered with news about how they've been compromised through Chinese interference. And they're desperate for anything to fill their headlines. And so, like, really, amazingly, I see about how they're doing this, all the stuff of Rocks and Road, all the, all the stuff they're doing there, they're really using this visit as a prop to change the channel. And I, that's, like, unprecedented in my lifetime. I think they're, it is clear that today's news about the hotel stay came out today, because, or at least they admitted it today, because they knew that, you know, the, the Biden-Trudeau meeting would get the bigger headlines. How, how much push and pull goes on in these meetings? Because obviously Canada wants an end to these U.S. protectionism measures. The United States would say, would love to say, hey, Canada, go down to Haiti to stabilize that nation. NORAD hangs in the balance. You mentioned rocks and Rome. Immigration is huge. How much push and pull happens at these sort of meetings? Uh, well, it isn't. It's, yeah, I mean, the two things, first of all, a lot of it depends. The, in, in terms of the raw power dynamics, uh, as anyone who's who's kind of been involved in things. No, like, like, you know, I, when I was in the PMO was, uh, is during the, the, the global financial crisis in 2007, 2008, 
and there were a bunch of tripartite negotiations between Ontario, Ottawa, and Washington about the auto sector response. And, you know, what's pretty clear during those is the Americans are going to do what the Americans are going to do. And they, and they very much would like for Canada to be a partner, but there's not, and, 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 and outside of, um, personal rapport between the leaders, uh, and outside of there being some, you know, some domestic or diplomatic, um, uh, uh plaudits for, for, for uh, the president bringing his allies along, you got to accept the Americans have domestic politics in the U.S. will always trump. Uh, Trump's a bad word. Domestic politics in the United States will always take precedence over over uh, uh, what happens in Canada. And it's clear that where American politics are right now and where Joe Biden is right now, he's not thinking about Canada. He, by, by political necessity and or by disposition, he's focusing on the U.S. And so, you know, the, the, the good old days of Ronald Reagan and Brian Murray singing songs together or the Trump relationship between John Cretchen and Bill Clinton, that's not what it is right now. And it's really about what can Canada get from a very distracted, inward-looking government. Well said, David. Always appreciate your time. Thanks for joining us. Have a great weekend. Thank you, Rick. Take care. David Terrence, VP, National Strategic Communications at Enterprise Canada, former communications strategist in the office of Prime Minister Stephen Harper. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. It's a plan to invest in our future, while at the same time, returning Ontario to a balanced budget. With these global economic challenges, the road ahead remains uncertain. And so our job is not done. Finance Minister Peter Bethlen Falvey speaking to Queen's Park yesterday and uh, delivering Ontario's biggest spending budget ever. Welcome back to Good Morning Hamilton on 900 CHML. This is a $204 billion document. $204 $204 billion. That's a lot of That's a lot of dollars in there. But it does not include any new funding for Ontarians struggling with high inflation. You're going to the grocery store and seeing the sticker shock, no money for you. You have to go to a food bank because you can't make ends meet to put food on the table, nothing for you. I'm sorry. You're filling up your gas tank because you got to get to work? Nope. No money for you. Yeah, the gas tax has still been shaved by... What is it, five, ten cents? That's great, but no money for you to get uh, get you to tackle high inflation, the high cost of living. There's also no money for COVID-19, which I think is a good sign. But the paid sick days program, that's gone. Jordan Ray is a principal and senior narrative consultant with Curious Public. He worked in the office of the Ministry of Finance for the 2017 and 18 Ontario budgets as the executive assistant to the parliamentary assistant. And Jordan joins us now on Good Morning Hamilton. Jordan, good morning. How are you? I'm great, Rick. Thanks for having me. We may have a balanced budget, but really there's not much balance for Ontario families. I, and I'm sure millions of others, are quite disappointed that, you know, inflation was not a part of this budget. At least targeted measures to tackle inflation were not included. Was this a missed opportunity for the government? Yeah, I think you hit the nail on the head when you said, Rick, that uh, it's like there's so much in the budget that's new spending, but there's nothing there for families, right? It's a spend more, get less budget. You look at the last couple of years, this government has underspent on three of the big line items, healthcare, education, community, social services, services for kids by $7.7 billion. So 
They've got room to spend for families and to make their lives easier if they want to, but they're just choosing not to. Some of the big items we are facing right now certainly includes the high cost of living. Healthcare is always going to be at the top of that list as well, and I'm going to get to that in a second. But another one is climate change. And I think there were just two mentions of the words climate change in the budget. It's one of the biggest issues facing humanity, yet nothing is being done on that front. What is going on? Yeah, it's a bit of a, I think, I think the climate change stuff on its own, like this government has been pretty vocal in its opposition to the carbon tax, for example. They're really leaning into the whole electric vehicle strategy, right? Like getting critical minerals out of the ring of fire and all these investments, you know, across Ontario for battery tech and electric vehicle manufacturing. So they're kind of doing the work to help us get to climate change. But on the actual, like, how are we going to bring emissions down? It's, it's not really there. On the healthcare front, I, I think there is some good news here. We shouldn't, you know, bash and pummel the government left, right, and center because there are some good things here. And I think, you know, whenever you're investing and spending and trying to beef up the healthcare system, it's a good thing. It certainly needs beefing up. That is for sure. Two hundred million dollars in supports to grow the workforce to get more people trained in the healthcare industry. I, I will have to say that's a thumbs up. Yeah, absolutely. And I think the Ford government. You know, the biggest announcement for this budget actually happened, you know, a while back when they had the new healthcare agreement with the feds, right? The feds said that they were going to give Ontario $8.4 billion in new spending for healthcare. Um, but if you look at this budget, the numbers have only gone up by about $5 billion and change. So again, there's room that the government has to spend more on a service that people really need right now, and they're just not taking it. Jordan Ray is our guest on Good Morning Hamilton on 900 CHML. Jordan is the principal and senior narrative consultants with Curious Public. I mentioned the paid sick days program, getting the old heave-ho, which I get it, there's a cost to that, but there's also a cost for people going to work sick, getting others sick, and now you have a bunch of people staying home, which hurts that particular business or industry. Yeah, it's... it's the, the long-term thinking on this one just doesn't make sense, right? It's if you want people to be able to work and be productive in the workplace, it makes sense to make sure they're not getting their colleagues sick, right? That's something that we should have learned from the COVID-19 pandemic. And I'm just not seeing it here in this budget. Is there something else you wanted to see? You know, the uh, we had the Ontario ta- or the Canadian Taxpayers Federation on yesterday. The the Ontario director said, you know, one thing that they'd love to see is um, a shaving of the HST, which you know would amount to the PST here in Ontario. But it, it, is that feasible? Is that something that we should have seen? Uh, it, if not yesterday, maybe in the years to come. I mean, there's there's so much. There's so many places where like. I'll, I'll be upfront. Like I'm a liberal, and I I don't believe that tax cuts are the way to to prosperity for us. We got to invest in people and invest in the things that are going to make their lives better. Um, I think that if the government has fiscal room, which it clearly does, uh, it could spend more on things like trying to close the skills gap. Um, there's so many businesses who can't hire the labor they need to fill the jobs that are out there. Um, there was a lot of money in this budget, some extra money for the skills development fund. I think that's really positive. Um, but given how much of a, how tight the labor market is in those areas, especially when we're spending billions on building housing, infrastructure, transit, hospitals, um, there's got to be more done. 
I'll agree with you on that. That is for sure. Jordan, we'll have to leave it there as we're out of time. Appreciate your time today. Thanks for joining us. Thanks so much, Rick. Jordan Ray, Principal and Senior Narrative Consultant at Curious Public. He worked in the Office of the Ministry of Finance in uh, the 2017 and 18 Ontario budget years. And that skill trades bucket, if you will, we talked about it on the show yesterday with this $224 million over the next uh, several years to boost up skill trades training centers, uh, an extra $75 million over the next three years stuffed in there as well. We need to do more of that. We need more skilled tradespeople in this province working away. This is a sector that is in great need of individuals. And, you know, we we got to build a lot of homes. There's lots of money in this budget to build more highways and hospitals and healthcare spaces. We need people to build these things. And skilled trades is a crucial part of that. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. We all know about COVID, uh, RSV, uh, the regular flu, if you will. They've all dominated the headlines this winter. Uh, West Nile virus will undoubtedly make a return this summer, I'm sure. We shouldn't forget about avian flu because, well, cases of it have been confirmed on some commercial farms in Niagara region. It's been spotted in uh, the Chatham-Kent area. There have been several suspected cases uh, in wild birds in Peel region. So it's here, although experts are saying that the risk to humans is low, at least for now. So what should we be aware of? Well, let's bring in an expert. Matthew Miller is the director of the Michael G. DeGroote Institute for Infectious Disease Research at McMaster University and joins us now on Good Morning Hamilton. Matthew, good morning. How are you? I'm well, thanks. How are you? I'm good. How would you classify the status of uh, H5N1 in Canada and around the world? Are we at a, I don't know, a, a simmering stage? Yeah, I think that would be a good way to describe it. Um, the The issue with uh, these avian H5N1 viruses is that um, they're really extraordinarily lethal to both wildlife and when they spill over to humans, to humans as well. Um, they're quite a bit different from the sort of seasonal flus we experience because seasonal flu basically infects our, our respiratory tract, our nose and throat and lungs, and it kind of stays there. These highly pathogenic avian flus, though, can spread to organs and tissues throughout our body, including the brain, and cause things like encephalitis, and that's why they're so dangerous. So what is the prevalence of human cases around the world? Are there many? No, there have been very, very few human cases, thankfully. Um, This virus is sort of a natural virus of birds, and what's happened over the last year or so is that there is an outbreak in um, migratory waterfowl. So, so things like ducks and geese um, that migrate south during the winter. Um, we think that a lot of these birds came from Europe and then basically migrated across the ocean and through North and South America. And in birds, this virus spreads through their feces. And so in coastal areas or on farms where birds roost, um, where they defecate, if other animals come in contact with that, they have a possibility of being infected. And that's where we think a lot of the infections that we've seen in wildlife have initially uh, originated from. In addition, this virus can kill those birds. And so scavenger animals like foxes and skunks and raccoons that feed on carcasses can also become infected that way. So for humans, I think, the real risk 
comes from handling uh, infected wildlife. So the best way for people to protect themselves is simply to avoid contact with sick or dead animals. Our guest on Good Morning Hamilton on 900 CHML, Matthew Miller, director of the Michael G. DeGroote Institute for Infectious Disease Research at McMaster University, an expert on the influenza virus, immunology, and disease transmission. Um, you mentioned other animals. There, There is a case or cases in Vancouver where skunks in uh, Vancouver and nearby Richmond died of avian flu, likely after scavenging on dead wild birds. So should pet owners in this area or Niagara or Chatham-Kent or wherever this avian flu is be on notice? I think so. I think it would be important for people to be vigilant with their pets. Um, you know, cats in particular are, are predators of birds. And so um, people who maybe, uh, you know, allow their cats to roam outside um, might want to think twice about that, given the, the situation that we're finding ourselves in now, where this virus is clearly more prevalent um, in, in birds that, that are now traveling through uh, our area, as well as in uh, animals that come in contact with those birds or the droppings of those birds. Um, dogs too, right, can can often, you know, chase skunks and, and other animals like that that could become infected. So keeping animals on leash when out for walks or, or in their homes um, would be the safest way to to avoid their domestic animals coming in contact with these infected wildlife. So while the risk to humans remains low, could that change in a heartbeat? Certainly it could. Um, right now, there's been no sign that, that this virus is adapting in a way where we would predict that it should become a lot better at infecting humans. But every opportunity that the virus has to infect mammals, which are obviously closer to humans than birds are, or humans themselves gives it sort of a lottery ticket to learn to infect humans more efficiently. Um, however, even if we don't see sustained sort of human to human transmission of this virus, it still warrants extra caution because when what we call spillover events happen, so when a human becomes infected from an animal, with this virus, the mortality can be in the range of 50%, which is, you know, equivalent to, to viruses a lot of people associate as being really scary, right? Things like Ebola have mortality rates at that level. So uh, it, it has an extraordinarily high risk, and this is why it really warrants extra vigilance. We only have about a minute. Does it make sense now to work on a vaccine just in case, or, or do we have something already? It definitely does make sense. The good news is that the the way that we make seasonal influenza vaccines can can also be used to make vaccines against these highly pathogenic avian flus like H5N1. And indeed, many seasonal vaccine manufacturers are able to produce sort of emergency stocks of vaccine against viruses like this in the case of an epidemic or a pandemic. And so, you know, that infrastructure is um, certainly in a better place than we were in the context of COVID, where we didn't have any coronavirus vaccines prior to the pandemic emerging. Well, that's some good news to take home. Matthew, appreciate your time today. Thanks for uh, joining us. Thank you. 
Great chat with uh, Matt Miller, director of the Michael G. DeGroot Institute for Infectious Disease Research at McMaster University. And, uh, you know, avian flu is something that we definitely have to keep tabs on, as you heard. While there's no risk to humans right now, or at least that, that risk is extremely low, this is something that officials like... Matthew and many others are going to keep an eye on because, well, we just don't know how it is going to develop. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. A professor at McMaster University has produced a short animated film about generations of indigenous iron workers who were instrumental in helping construct some of the most iconic structures in New York City. His name is Alan Downey. He's an associate professor of history at McMaster University and joins us now on Good Morning Hamilton. Alan, good morning. How are you? Morning. I'm great. What inspired you to learn about studying indigenous iron workers and ultimately make a film about it? Yeah, there's a long story about how I came into this project, but ultimately it was um, looking at in, actually Indigenous lacrosse is where I started. Um, and when I was looking at the history of Indigenous lacrosse and lacrosse and Indigenous communities, I was coming across these iron workers all the time because they worked hard during the day and then they played hard and played lacrosse. So one of the aspects that I focused on was what they were doing after work. Now I've kind of shifted my focus to look at what they were doing for work and their livelihood, which was for a lot of Indigenous uh, workers in and around Southern Ontario and Southern Quebec was iron work. So these iron workers who went into New York City, they were from Canada? Yes, they were. So they're uh, from a community called Ganawage, just south of Montreal. And they would make the trip or relocate from basically, they were started doing this in the 1920s down to New York City. And they would contribute to building some of the most iconic buildings, the Chrysler Building, the Empire State Building, uh, the Waldorf Astoria Hotel, George Washington Bridge, and many, many other structures. And that's not an easy job. I mean, you're working on a tower in some cases um, that puts you on a beam hundreds of feet into the sky. What kind of conditions did they have to endure? Yeah, certainly it's dangerous work. It has been. It continues to be dangerous work. Um, and so you're dealing with conditions such as uh, winds and the possibility of falling, the possibility of being injured or even killed. Um, and there's kind of a, a long history of Indigenous people having to be confronted by this. Um, and yet they are extremely successful and prominent within this position and when, within this livelihood. And so there's a very long, incredible history of uh, Indigenous ironworkers for the last 140 years who've helped create some of North America's most iconic landmarks. Our guest on Good Morning Hamilton on 900 CHML is Alan Downey, Associate Professor of History at McMaster University. We're talking about uh, a new short, animated short film that he has um, uh, developed that really uh, paints a, uh, a phenomenal picture about indigenous iron workers who helped construct some of the most iconic buildings in New York City. And, you know, I heard about this story and and, and watched the, the film, and it's really well done, I got to say, um, that many people, I did not know this, many indigenous people took up the trades in the 1880s. And I'm thinking, why or how has this history not been given more attention? Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, despite their presence in New York City and other urban centers throughout North America for more than a century, 
American popular culture in the 19th and 20th centuries basically held that these spaces, which were urban spaces, were antithetical, the opposite to indigenous existence and largely void of an indigenous presence. So they're written out of the history. They're erased from urban environments. And so part of this project and part of the film is to counter that erasure, to place indigenous peoples within urban environments and to kind to demonstrate how these spaces have had a significant impact on Indigenous history, on Indigenous nationhood, uh, in Indigenous self-determination. Your film also gives props to Indigenous women who also played an integral part of what happened. How did they contribute? Absolutely. They're the kind of the interlocutors of language, of history, of culture within these urban spaces. So they're key. Indigenous women are key throughout the history of ironworking and throughout the history of uh this Brooklyn neighborhood that's formed in the 1920s um, because they are the kind of uh, linchpin that connects indigenous peoples to their home communities and to their languages and to future jobs and to um, even boarding residences. So they were really key in helping these kind of transient indigenous workers find a place and it ends up becoming a indigenous experience for them, for these indigenous iron workers, for those that lived in these urban environments. And that's thanks largely to the indigenous women that were kind of these key uh, middle people in this whole kind of experience. Where can people find your film and do you plan to make more? Yeah, so you can find the film at www.indigenousironworkers.com. And yes, the plan is is to um, write a book on the history of Indigenous ironworkers, which I'm continuing to do. I've been doing this for a little while, a couple of years now, um, and I'm hopeful to have that done within the next two years or so. Uh, we'll see how it goes. But I also uh, am planning to do some more digital animations. And specifically, I'm looking to work with Indigenous youth so that they can kind of select the local Indigenous histories that they want to tell and help write and design uh, future digital animations. That's a great idea. And I, I wish you nothing but the best. You've already uh, opened many eyeballs and I'm sure more to come, both with uh, more uh, films and, and the book once it does come out. Uh, appreciate your time today, Mr. Downey. Thanks for joining us and enjoy the rest of your day and your weekend. Well, thank you for, very much for having me. That is Alan Downey, Associate Professor of History at McMaster University. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. Fresh off the relaunch of Canadian discount brand Zellers, Blockbuster Video has a cryptic message on its website that has many people anticipating a rebirth. Welcome back to Good Morning Hamilton on 900 CHML. Rick Samprin with you. Go to Blockbuster.com. And when you do, you will see a message that says, we are working on rewinding your movie. And it's got the Blockbuster logo splashed right across the screen. Go to the mobile site. And it says, be kind while we rewind. So as you can imagine, I mean, people are just losing their minds thinking Blockbuster is going to make a comeback. Is it going to happen? Bruce Winder is a retail analyst and author of Retail Before, During, and After COVID-19 and joins us now on GMH. Bruce, welcome back to the show. How are you? 
Good. I'm doing well. How you doing? I'm good. If you were a betting man, would you bet on a blockbuster comeback? Uh, I wouldn't bet on a blockbuster comeback in its previous form, but you know you could see blockbuster get into the streaming service, uh, streaming business through a venture you know, with some investors, because the brand has massive uh, brand awareness, brand appeal, nostalgia. Um, It just kind of was in the wrong business model at the wrong time. This is a brand, as you mentioned, that has stayed with so many people for so long. I mean, it's not like they went belly up a couple of years ago. It's been a while. Why has this stuck with us? You know what? I think it's just one of those things that a lot of us grew up and we have blissful memories of going out to the movie store, watching movies with our family or or whoever, our loved ones or friends. And it's it was sort of just that brand that allowed us to sort of jump into this happy place of escaping from the world and watching movies. That's how I think of it anyways, when I think of Blockbuster is sort of, you know, it was a great brand that allowed us to escape the world and it stayed with us. You know, it really stayed with us. There is one physical blockbuster location in Bend, Oregon, of all places, and it's been it's been open through all this time. Is there a market for maybe a couple more physical blockbusters, even though that streaming might be the way of the future and probably will be? Could they, in fact, go in the physical brick and mortar um, space once again? Well, one could argue that there could be a niche business for that. Um, Not unlike what's happened with vinyl in the music business, where, you know, some people really like using vinyl. They have an old record player turntable. And there's been some vinyl stores pop up as a niche. You know, one could argue that that could be a thing in select areas where they have, you know, DVDs or whatever, VHS, you know. Um, But people would obviously need to have the player that goes with it. So you never know. But, you know, if I was them, I would be thinking more about the streaming market. Having said that, the streaming market is incredibly crowded now. You know, it used to be just Netflix and now you've got Disney and you've got everyone sort of into this market. But I know that once you get in it, if you can get the subscribership, you know, you can make some good money on it. If they go the streaming route, is it likely that they follow, say, Apple TV's lead and, and go with original productions as opposed to just spewing out a bunch of movies. Yeah, I mean, it's a pretty different business model. Um, You know, it really depends on what they want to do. I mean, they would have to be bought by someone or have someone that has that capability to build the content, right? That's That's a pretty different business model versus just kind of licensing movies and putting them on your on your streaming service. So I'm really not sure. I mean, when you're when you're a studio, that that's a lot more money, right? That that's a big commitment, big capability, and there's risks in that, right? You know, so uh, probably, you know, if I was a betting person, I would say it's probably just going to be almost like a brokerage, you know, almost like an, a marketplace where you can go on and and stream different movies, maybe movies from the old days, maybe it's sort of a retro movie, you know, streaming service, something that makes it different than the current leaders in the market. Yeah, could be. And price points will obviously go a long way to determining how many people hop on board as well. Lastly, for you, you probably don't even have the answer to this. Any kind of <laughs> timeline on how long this could take to to kind of get off the ground? Well, it's interesting. I mean, usually when companies start to tease announcements like this, something happens soon. Um, you know, because they've been they've probably been working on things for a while. Having said that, you never know. They might be putting this out there just to garner almost like a test market to see what the reaction is before they decide 
to get into this. So it could be a test market, uh, a test sort of tweet, if you will, or test blog. Um, or it might be sort of, you know, they're about to pull the curtain back and uh, this is a bit of a teaser marketing campaign. So hard to know. Well, it has generated a lot of excitement. We know that. Bruce, appreciate your time this morning. Enjoy the day and the weekend. Yeah, you too. Take care. All the best. Bruce Winder, retail analyst, author of Retail Before, During, and After COVID-19. Blockbuster video. Who knows? It could be back sometime soon. Thanks for listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast. You can listen to the show live weekday mornings from 530 to 9 on 900 CHML and online at 900CHML.com. The Good Morning Hamilton podcast is available on Apple Podcast, Google Podcast, and wherever you get your favorite podcasts. I'm Rick Samprin. Thanks again for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free so you never miss an episode. And make sure you rate and review.